Today we're in John chapter 16. If you'd like a title for this message, I've called it Deep and Irrevocable Joy. We are in the farewell discourse. This is the night before Jesus died. And he's gathered his band of brothers in this room to communicate to them on some very important issues and he's seeking to care for them here. And we continue our story then from verse 16 through to the end of verse 22. It's Jesus speaking and he says as follows. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they, what, what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one, no one will take your joy from you. Let's pray. Our Father, as we gather around the truth of deep and irrevocable joy. Lord, I pray that by the end of this time together, that would be the fruit being born in every individual's life in this room. Lord, joy isn't something that is meant to be far off and ungrasped. But joy is a gift that you want us to receive as we focus on your word and surround ourselves with the gospel. So, Father, help us do that today. Holy Spirit, would you come and quicken our hearts that we may see this joy is ours. In Jesus' precious name, amen. When Jesus walked the earth, he made many radical and extraordinary statements and claims. He made a whole number of them. He, he made them in particular about himself claiming to be God, that's a pretty outrageous statement to be making, and he makes it time and time again as he claims to see the Father is to see me, and so on and so forth. He's basically claiming all the way through, I am God. That is an outrageous claim to make. But he also makes many outrageous claims about the effect that he can have on other people's lives, how he can transform people's lives. And verse 22 is one of those statements and claims. Because in verse 22, he claims that he can give us a joy that will never, ever be taken away. I mean, think about that. That's a claim to the disciples. Are you disciples? Yes. It's a claim for you. He's claiming that you can have a joy that will never, ever be taken away. And what a comfort that must have been to the disciples. I mean, imagine the scene. And let's just... Picture the scene again so we understand exactly what's going on. They're in the upper room the night before Jesus died. 
In chapter 13, Jesus himself starts to engage with them and talk to them. And they start arguing. They start kicking off because they want to know who's the favorite disciple, who's the bestie. And so they start moaning and arguing. And Jesus then wraps a towel around his waist, starts to wash their feet and show them that it's all about serving. It's not about who's the greatest. The greatest one among you will be the servant of all. And that just as I've done to you, you need to do to others because this is what love is all about, serving people and loving people and helping people. Well, in the midst of that, though, he says something to them that causes real shock because he explains to them, look, my hour has come and I'm going to be going. And he explains to them in the midst of that that, Peter, you're you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. And Judas, you're going to betray me. Well, the disciples are in disarray. For three years, they've been a solid team. And now, within this hour, things are clearly going to change. Their leader's going. Peter's going to deny the Savior. This man who was as strong as an ox, Judas, is going to betray Jesus. And so they start to panic. And so in John chapter 14, you have, I think, one of the best chapters of pastoral ministry you will ever come across from the ultimate pastor, Jesus Christ. Explain to them, listen, guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he talks to them about how you're not home yet and that I'll always be with you and the Holy Spirit will be with you, helping you throughout. And he goes and just begins to care for them and explains to them that even though I'm going, I'll be back in the person of the Holy Spirit helping you and caring for you along the way. Well, in chapter 15 then, he warns them, just as they're getting a bit comforted about this, that even though I'm going to be with you, you are going to be persecuted. That's what Brendan taught us last week. And Imagine that scene. That is a full-on moment. What do you mean persecuted? I thought we were about to go into Jerusalem and take the kingdom. You're telling me we're going to go in there and get persecuted? Obviously, they're just like us. They start to get anxious again. And so chapter 16 begins with Jesus reminding them once again about the Holy Spirit, how he's going to come. He just explains to them once again, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to help you. He's going to comfort you. And then in verses 16 through 22, this scene before us arrives. See, in verse 19, look again, the whole situation starts with Jesus saying, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. He's very aware that the disciples are discussing something among themselves. It's like one of those parties where you're aware there's a few people over in the corner having a chat, and clearly they're kind of talking about you, but they don't want to say. Well, Jesus has got an advantage on us. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And so he just comes out with it. Listen. Is this what you're saying? You don't understand what I'm saying when I say to you that I'm going to be gone in a little while and you won't see me, but then I'm going to be back. Do you not understand that? Well, of course, that's exactly right. He knows he's right because he knows all things. And so in verse 20, he says this, explaining to them about what he's just said. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will will turn into joy. What's he on about there? What he's on about is his death and resurrection. He's saying, in a little while, you will weep and lament. Why? Well, because tomorrow, I'm going to die. Your leader, who you love, is going to be crucified on a rugged cross. And in a little while, then you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Exactly what did happen is they're cheering and mocking him from afar. But you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 
John chapter 20, verse 20, that's exactly what happens. Jesus dies and then he rises again. He rises from the dead. He comes back to them. And as he encounters the disciples, it simply says, and they rejoiced. For indeed, in a little while, you'll see me no longer and you will be sorrowful. But in a little while, your sorrow will turn into joy. See what he's talking about there? He's talking about his death and his resurrection. In verse 21, he then gives an analogy of how that's going to feel to them. And it's a brave analogy for a man. It's an analogy of childbirth. And it has to be the savior of the world that takes this analogy on because everybody else would be too scared to do so. But he explains to them that, you know what? What you're going to feel like is just what a pregnant woman feels like when she gives birth. She gives birth, and to be honest, that is not a lot of fun. I've, I've been participating in that through holding Emma's hand three times. And holding Emma's hand was painful enough. But let alone what is actually taking place before me. I mean, for anybody who is pregnant... You've nothing to fear. It's easy. But for anybody who's done it before, you know what I'm saying. It's challenging. There are challenges to it. But why does a woman, having gone through such ordeal, do it again? And then again? Well, it's because there is a joy in that baby being born which is greater than the sorrow. There is a joy in that child being born that is greater even than the pain. So even though they say to you after they've pushed this child out, I don't want any more. Within a week, they're saying, maybe we should have some more. And it's as if they've forgotten because the child is there. And Jesus is saying to them, that is what you're going to feel like as disciples. You're going to be really sorrowful. But in a few days' time, you're going to look back and you're going to forget your sorrow. You are going to be so excited There is something going to happen, namely his resurrection, that is going to excite you so much that your sorrow will turn into joy. Just like a baby being born, that is going to happen in your lives. And in verse 22 then, as a crescendo of what he's just said, he makes that statement. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again three days later. And your hearts will rejoice, exactly what happened, and, listen, no one, No one will take your joy from you. That's an incredible statement. No one, whatever your circumstances, whatever happens in your life, no one will ever take that joy away from you. For there is a joy, disciples, that can never be taken away from you. You see, what Jesus is pointing them to is the deep and irrevocable joy that will come to them in and through the gospel. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about his death and resurrection. And he's saying, through my death and resurrection, you will receive a joy that will never be taken away from you. Through my death and resurrection, you will receive something where you will know once and for all that you've been forgiven of your sin, that you've been adopted into the family of God, that you've been justified, that heaven is without question your home, and you will receive a joy in the gospel that will never, ever be taken away from you. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what your difficulties, there will be a joy pursuing your life that is irrevocable and deep. See, here's the point I want to make this morning. One point, the gospel is an incredible source of deep and irrevocable joy. The gospel The truth of Christ and him crucified is an incredible source of deep and irrevocable joy. What encouragement that must have been to the disciples to know you're going to be gone and this freaks me out. I don't want my heart to be troubled and I'm going to be persecuted. That doesn't sound fun. 
Yeah, but disciples, you're going to receive a deep and irrevocable joy that will never be taken away from you. What an encouragement to them. And my friends, if we're perceptive, what an encouragement this should be to us as well. Because you're disciples, right? And so, you also should be on the receiving end of a deep and irrevocable joy that comes to us through the gospel. That comes to us as we gather around the truth of Christ crucified and Christ raised. As we gather around the truths of Calvary. The question I want to answer then this morning is this. How does that work? Because we say it a lot as a local church, don't we? We talk about being a gospel-centered church and everybody goes, yeah, that's great, we're a gospel-centered church. Why? 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 How does it actually work that the gospel is a source of deep and irrevocable joy? How does the gospel bring such deep and irrevocable joy? You see, this morning, I don't want to assume understanding on that. I don't. Because I think we should never assume the gospel, never assume that people always understand that. Because I had the gospel for years in my life, going to church as a young man, and never understood the gospel. Hearing it all the time. No clue. Don't understand how it really relates to my life. I understand that I get saved by it, but after that, I'm sort of just getting on. I don't understand how it influences my life. And so I never want us to assume understanding as to how the gospel brings deep and irrevocable joy. But I do want to assume that we have a tendency to forget. Because I think we do. A while ago I came across or was made aware of an article in a newspaper entitled, How Soon We Forget. And it was about two men. One, this one guy in 1997 had jumped from a plane 3,000 metres up, parachute on his back, and as he jumps, his parachute only opens about two metres wide, and it's broken. And he falls 3,000 metres in 60 seconds and survives. He lived and so this dude, I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, people seem to trip and hit their, hit their neck on a curb at a certain angle and they're, and they're, and they're dead. You know, the gruesome things seem to happen. And then people fall from 3,000 meters and they survive. You just can't believe it. But this dude actually survived. And so part of the article is about this guy. And another part of the article is about this man who, who woke up in Cairo, Egypt, true story, who woke up in a morgue. He was in the fridge. And as he felt around in the fridge, he realized, I'm with Dead people. This man had been in a coma for some time and they had assumed he was dead. So he wakes up in the fridge. I mean, that is a freak out moment. That's like a, that's a nightmare. True story moment. Well, he calls out for help. At which point the paramedic comes running in and the paramedic opens the fridge. At which point this guy says, I'm alive. At which point the paramedic has a heart attack and dies. <laughs> True story. And you don't know how to take that news. Do you? It's like, this is great. Oh, oh, what a shame. I mean, do you just swap places? I mean, it's just awkward. But true story. And the whole article was so clever then because the point was how soon we forget. The point was for these two men, one jumped from a parachute, one woke up in a morgue, they will never forget 1997. But the point was, we will. Who remembers what we were doing on the 21st of April 1997? I mean, I, I can't remember what I did. There's so many things. I can't remember last week, let alone... I mean, I do things in my life. I go to conferences, I, I see people, I meet with people, and they remind me of a certain conversation. 
I can't even remember meeting with them. I mean, that's how bad it is. I, I forget things all the time. Just on Monday, it was our wedding anniversary on Monday, and Emma said, could you get some milk when you go to Coles? That's not a hard request. It's not difficult at all. So I proceeded to Coles. I came back with flowers. Nice gesture. No milk. Completely forgot the milk. Just no recollection of that conversation. Like, oh, I can't, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'll go out again later, which I did. So I went out again later for the milk. I got distracted on the way and got to McDonald's instead. I mean, how long, O oh Lord, is the cry of my wife's heart? And so, so she had to go out and get her own milk later on for her own safety if she really wanted a cup of tea. Uh, because I was just going to forget. I always forget things. I forget trivial things, and I think we all forget trivial things. But the truth is, we also forget important things, don't we? We forget the gospel. And we forget how it is a source of deep and irrevocable joy. So I don't want to assume understanding, but I do want to assume our tendency to forget. So three points. Three things that I think will help us understand how the gospel is an incredible source of deep and irrevocable joy. Number one, the gospel points us beyond our works to grace. The gospel, the truth of Christ and him crucified, points us beyond our works to grace. See, there is a temptation and a tendency, I think, in all of our hearts to smuggle in works to a salvation that in all reality is all of grace. We all try and smuggle in our character to something that God says, this was all my doing. And yet we try and smuggle in our works and by very nature, that's what legalism is. C.J. Mahaney says it this way. He says, legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God, justification before God, and acceptance by God through our obedience to God. Did you get that? Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God, justification before God, and acceptance by God through our obedience to God. Legalism then, in essence is our attempt to substitute our works for his finished work. In a phrase, listen, in a phrase, legalism is self-atonement. And that's why legalism stinks. Legalism is so serious. Legalism by very nature is saying, Lord, it's, it's going toe-to-toe with God and saying, Lord, the cross was good, but the cross needs me as well. The cross was good, but it is not enough by itself. Given your holiness and my sinfulness, the cross gets me most of the way, but it is also dependent upon my works. And that's how you will forgive me. That's how you'll justify me. That's how you will accept me. Legalism is by very nature self-atonement. And legalism is a joy destroyer. It kills our joy. You speak to people that are undergoing legalism and they just seem so sad. They tell you about all the things they're doing for Jesus. And yet, as they're telling you about all the things they're doing for Jesus, there is a distinct tone of sadness because they never feel like they're doing enough. And they never feel like they're doing enough because somewhere, somehow, legalism has crept into their life. And I submit to you, that is a daily temptation and tendency probably for every one of us in this room. Because there is always a temptation to self-atone in our lives. And I know it because I've lived it many, many times. See, as a young man, I was what C.J. Mahaney calls in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, 
I was a legalistic plate spinner. You know what plate spinners are, right? You see them at the circus and you see them on the TV. These guys that just have these huge long sticks and then loads of plates. And they, they, they go along the, and then by the end you're going, this is the first one, this is the first one. Because the first one's about to drop but they're going along and they're pretending they haven't seen. But Oh, they have seen because it's just a show. But by the end there's just these hundreds of plates, right? And there's all that all the way around the stage. And for me, I was a legalistic plate spinner. You see, when I became a Christian, I was very excited about it. I was excited. I was, I was thrilled and I was generally amazed by grace. It affected me. I was such a jerk that I was so affected that God in his grace would come after me. I was so affected that Jesus would actually die in my place and, and forgive me and, and let me start my life over again. A life that I thought, it's already hit a dead end, I've already had it. I was so affected that Jesus had saved me genuinely and that heaven was going to be my home, even though that was a, it was a scandal of grace that that was true, given my past. It affected me. And yet, what happened very quickly is, in my enthusiasm and my zeal, I wanted to grow, which we all want to grow. And so the plate spinning began. So I'm ex- I've just become a Christian. I'm excited about becoming a Christian. And somebody says to me, you know what you need to do as a Christian? I said, I have no idea. Let's do this. And you need to read your Bible. Sounds great. So on goes the first plate. I start spinning the plate. I've got to read my Bible. And then somebody else says, you know what? Reading the Bible is really good, but you want to meditate on the Bible because you don't just want to speed read, right? You want to meditate. You know, that's, that's good as well. So on goes the next plate. Start meditating on the Bible. And then somebody else says, you know, those things are really good, but, but you need to hide it in your heart because that's what it says in the Psalms. You need to hide the word in your heart. So you need to be memorizing Scripture. You think, okay, I'll, I'll give that a go as well. So on goes the third plate. So, so this is good. I've got three plates. Every now and again, you have to go back and start to square them all up. And, and it's going all right. I've still got zeal at this point. And then somebody says, you know what? You need to join a life group. Because fellowship is really important and caring for one another and being devoted to one another and rejoicing together. And Okay, this, this all sounds really good, really biblical. So on go three more plates, all to do with life groups. So I've now got a row of six and I'm finding it a bit difficult because it's the six now. So I'm starting to keep these plates going as best I can in my life. I'm still enjoying the Lord. I'm still excited. And then somebody says, you know what? It's not just about life group. You've got to do some other things. Have you thought about quiet times? I don't. Quiet times. What, what, you just sit there by yourself, quiet? How's this work? No, you need, to, you need to be quiet before the Lord. And Okay, so we'll put that plate on. And, and you should be praying for the, for the kings and for people in your land and, and for people in... Okay, I'll start a prayer ministry. This is good. I'll start praying because I need to do all these things. Is this what it means to be a Christian? And then somebody said, you know what? You need to pursue holiness in your life because it's not just about you. It's about putting sin to death and, and putting on Jesus and becoming more and more like him. So you, okay, I'll, I'll pursue holiness. So I started to pursue holiness. And then somebody says, you need to reach out. Because reaching out is what it's all about, making disciples of all nations. And you need to think about your family. You need to think about your friends. You need to think about what you could do for Jesus. Uh, okay. Oh, and by the way, there's serving and there's giving. And so by the end, I've got this huge row of plates in my life. And what happened in my life very quickly is the zeal and joy that I had as a new believer had all but gone. Why is that? Because these are all good plates, right? They're all biblical. They're all things that the Lord has called us to do. They are all things that God says, this is important in your life. So why do I lack such joy when that has happened? Here's what has gone on. I'd become a legalist. I'd become a legalist. Because I started to think 
that my justification before God and my forgiveness by God and my acceptance from God was no longer just dependent upon the cross, which is where I began. I thought it was dependent upon all my plates as well. And so I'm spinning them like crazy, just trying to keep up so that God will be impressed with me and he'll accept me and he'll still be passionate about me. I'd smuggled in works into a situation of salvation which is all of grace. All these things are good things before the Lord and all these things that I was spinning in the air are ways of experiencing God's grace. They are means of grace. They are things that God gives us to experience Him for the good of ourselves and for the good of our Christian walk. That is a fact. But they are never ways of earning God's grace. And they're the two things we get mixed up. We think that they're ways of earning God's grace rather than experiencing God's grace. And when we do that, we are by very nature legalistic. So how do we respond to that? How do we deal with that? Here's how. By focusing on the gospel. Because the gospel points us beyond our works to grace. It reminds us that it is good to read the Bible and it is good to pray and it is good to worship and good to do life groups and good to reach out and good to pursue holiness. But when it comes to your salvation, you can let every plate drop. All of them. Because your salvation and your acceptance by God and your forgiveness from God and your justification by God is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. There is nothing to smuggle in. And the moment we do that, what we're saying is, well, if I don't read my Bible, he won't accept me. Well, was the cross not enough then? Did he really need you to read the Bible as well? And that's how you're going to get in? You think he's impressed with that? My friends, that's what legalism is all about. The way we put to death legalism is by focusing on the gospel. And when we focus on the gospel, it points us beyond our works to grace. And when we see that, and we let all the plates drop, and we stand once again by the cross, you know what you receive? Joy. (laughs) Deep and irrevocable joy, as you realize in the context of worship, this is scandalous grace. It is ridiculous that I'm a Christian. I am so pathetic at many of the things that Christians are meant to do. But God in his grace loves me and has forgiven me and has justified me and heaven is my home despite me because my salvation is all of grace. It's all him, not me. And that's why I must make my boast him and not me. Mr. Dixon says it this way. He says, I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad and cast them in a heap before the Lord and fled from both. And betaking myself to the Lord Jesus Christ, in him, I have a sweet peace. Isn't that wonderful? I've taken all my good works and all my bad, and I've cast them in a heap before the Lord. Because I realize my salvation is not based on them. And I have betaken myself to the Lord. And in him, I have a sweet peace as I realize Jesus has paid it all. Jesus alone is enough. My justification, my forgiveness, my acceptance, it's not based on my works. It's based on his grace. What joy giving that is, don't you think? That's the power of the gospel. And if in the moment you are experiencing that sense of, this is great, that's the power of the gospel. That's what it does. That's not all it does. Number two, the gospel points us beyond our feelings to truth. 
And we are a feelingsy people, are we not? Now, I've met so many people in Australia, even very good Bible scholars and teachers, that when you then talk to them, they still tell you about what they feel rather than what is real. There is a temptation, I think, in our culture, the same in the UK, to, to think with our feelings. And that's not helpful. See, an all-too-common temptation and tendency, I think, is to do that. And that's what subjectivism is all about. Subjectivism is, by nature, as Sinclair Ferguson says, thinking with our feelings. And the challenge when we think with our feelings is this. With subjectivism, the tendency and temptation, then, will be because we think with our feelings to base our view of God and how we perceive God feels about us on how we feel about our circumstances rather than objective truth. Let me say that again. Subjectivism by nature is, is basing our view of God and how we think he feels about us, not dependent upon truth, but dependent on how we feel about our circumstances. And the challenge within that is our circumstances always change, right? So some weeks we wake up and we think, God loves me. Oh my gosh, praise his name. And other weeks, the sure sparks fall, but troubles fall, and you think, I'm not sure God exists. I, I don't know where he is. He's clearly left me this week. I must have done something wrong. That's subjectivism. Basing the way we feel God feels about us, depending on how we feel about our ever-changing circumstances. Sinclair Ferguson wonderfully says it this way. He says, The evangelical orientation is inward and subjective. Very perceptive point, and I think it's true. We are far better at looking inward than we are outward. And we can all too easily think with our feelings. I think that's true. We base our lives on the word and then in conversation we say, well, I just don't feel that, that that's quite for me. And well, Who's talking about feelings? We're trying to base our lives on, on the word. What we stand on, on, on truth. See, I love roller coasters. Always enjoyed roller coasters growing up, uh, particularly doing teens ministry. I used to take the kids once a year to Oakwood Park, which is a theme park in Wales, and I used to do it for selfish reasons because I wanted to go and they could come with me. And it was a load of fun. And, and certainly when we got to the roller coaster queue, I decided that it was important to lead the pack there by going on first because I wanted to go on first and then I wanted to go on last as well because it's just so much fun. I love roller coasters. I, I like the exhilaration of them. I like the way they... I, I mean, this one was particularly good because in Oakwood Park, it was a wooden one. So one of those you can... I like, that was really good. So, so you'd sit at the front, you're trying to get to the front, and then you could feel it going up. And, and you're really excited until like the, the, the system comes down and you're strapped in, and you think, what have I done? But you know that feeling is coming, and you enjoy that as well. So you get into the, what have you done? And then you go up, there and you're thinking, this is, this is so much higher than I remember it before. And, but it's too late now. You're on the way up, and you, it's, and then all of a sudden... You're over the edge and you're going down and you go so fast and you spin around the edges and you can't believe it until you come to the end and you're like, that was just sick. I want to do it again. So I love that. I enjoy roller coasters. I love the exhilaration of it. I, I love the way it goes up and down. I love the fast. I love the slow. I love the twists and the turns. But I don't want to live my life as if I'm on a roller coaster. I love real life roller coasters. But I hate subjective roller coasters because subjective roller coasters ruin people's lives and 
The reality is, subjective roller coasters steal people of joy. Depending on where they are in the roller coaster experience. So they set off in their lives and they're excited because it's Sunday. And we're all with God's people on a Sunday and I feel good about my life. Jesus is great. I've been reminded of the gospel and this is so good and I'm aware of his deep love for me. But then Monday morning starts and you think, oh my, I've got a lot on this week. There's a lot happening this week. And where is God? Where's he gone? What happened on Sunday when, when these dudes are playing that note on the piano? I can sense the spirit. But on Monday, the piano sound is gone and I, I can't sense him near me. And then all of a sudden, they ascend. They ascend the top of the roller coaster on Tuesday morning. And the sound that you hear as a group leader over the phone is, ah! because they think God has left them. Because they're basing their entire daily walk on how they feel about their outward circumstances as to how they perceive God feels about them. If the circumstances are good, God must be near and God must be loving them and blessing them. And if the circumstances are bad, maybe he's given up on them. Maybe he's punishing them. Lord, I'm praying, but I can't feel you. I can't sense you. My friends, if if that sums you up, I want to exhort you. Get off the darn roller coaster. Don't spend your life on a subjective roller coaster because it would steal you of joy like nothing else. As sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. Jesus himself said, man is born to trouble. We will face things in our lives. And so if you incorrectly and heretically base your view of God and how he feels about you on your ever-changing circumstances, your perception of God will be ever-changing. So how do you get off? How do you get off the roller coaster? Here's how you get off. You get off by allowing the gospel to inform the truth of how God feels about you. You get off by allowing the gospel to appoint you beyond your ever-changing feelings of circumstances to the truth of what he's done. You get off by not basing your view of God on your daily ever-changing circumstances. You inform yourself each and every day of Calvary. You inform yourself. You don't listen to yourself all day. You talk to yourself all day, reminding that Jesus Christ died for you. While you were dead in your transgressions and sins, he he chose you. The Father himself then put his son to death. And consistently throughout, he had his eye on you. Chose you. You're an orphan. He adopted you. He now loves you as a son or a daughter. You've received the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance. Heaven will be your home. The Bible is clear that through the gospel, he sings over you. Do you see the power of the gospel in and how it can bring joy in the midst of subjectivism? Because instead of going up and down on our feelings of joy, depending on our circumstances, we go steady as we realize, whatever my circumstances, whatever my lot, thou has taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Because as I gather near the gospel, and as I allow the sparks of the cross to inform my feelings, I'm dazzled by his grace each and every day. And so if my life is perceivingly going good, I thank God for that. 
And if my life is going through challenge, well, I understand that is part of being a human being. And as sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall, and God will help me and aid me and will use this for my good and his glory in my life. But it is, has nothing to do with how he feels about me. It has to do with life. What good news this would have been for the disciples. Jesus just told them, you're going to be persecuted. If they were just subjective beings, they would leave that conversation thinking, Jesus, what is this? You clearly can't love us after all, just leaving us subjective to this. But he says to them, no, you're going to have a joy that will never be taken away. A joy that's consistent. Well, how? Through the gospel. You base your lives on the gospel. Paul himself was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was jailed. He was whipped. He was stoned. And then you get to Philippians. And out of all of literature, both secular and biblically, he mentions the word thanks more time than in any other book. Because he's so grateful. He's so filled with joy. Because he's aware, I was lost. But now I'm found. You want to know how God feels about me? He loves me. And it's scandalous grace. And I'm basing my life on the gospel. They received a joy through the gospel that informed every day of their lives that isn't on a roller coaster. It's just stagnant and strong at Calvary. Isn't that wonderful? It's the power of the gospel. It's the deep and irrevocable joy that comes as it points us beyond our feelings to truth. And finally, number three, the gospel points us beyond our sin to Calvary. I rarely read comic strips in the newspaper. But a few years ago, I was informed of a comic strip about a lady named Kathy. Kathy was a single lady. And in this whole comic strip, it's basically a comic strip that's talking about how she's thinking about a day and what's going on in her day. And so she's sitting at home with her thoughts. And in scene one, you, you simply read this. Things I should have done at work, all things that she's thinking. Things I wish I'd said to Irving. Things I promised myself to never do again, but did anyway. Ways I made myself miserable, but that that I could have avoided. As you go down to the second scene, she looks increasingly more depressed. So scene two. Things I could have done for my family, my puppy, my friends, my co-workers, my neighbor, my finances, my home, my diet and millions of people in need whom I've never met. And then the final slide takes place. And in it, she summarizes her plight. She says, even when I'm not going anywhere, it's as if I have 300 pounds of luggage with me. Even when I'm not going anywhere, I feel like I've got 300 pounds of luggage with me. Well, my friends in summation, that's what condemnation feels like too. Even when you're not going anywhere, you feel like you've got 300 pounds of luggage with you. It's the low-grade guilt of the businessman whose kids have lost their way and he looks back consistently and is aware of all the times he was never at home because he was so busy working. It's the guilt of the mum who had an abortion. And even though she now has kids, she's aware all the time. That was so wrong. And she lives with that guilt day in, day out. 
It's the guilt of the guy who's blown it in his life in big proportions. And although has asked for forgiveness and worked it through, still lives with that constant 300 pounds of luggage with them wherever they go. They're undergoing condemnation. And a common characteristic of those under condemnation is this. They, they perceive God regularly as disappointed with them. And so when they hear about salvation stories, they often look back to a church camp or something like that where they became a Christian. And as they look back on it, they think, you know, I probably got in as sort of one of God's job lots. There was probably ten of us and nine of us were probably great. And I was just the idiot that kind of got in because I just put my hand up. And he probably said, oh, go on then. And genuinely, people with condemnation struggle to think that they're special to God at all. They think of God as tolerating them, not delighting in them. They think of God as disappointed with them, not passionately in love with them. And so they carry this 300 pounds of luggage with them all the time. And a distinctive of people with condemnation is this. They lack joy. They're unaware in some ways, of Calvary, even though they've heard it many times. But they think of themselves as the exception. Well, my friends, what is the remedy to that? I'll tell you what the remedy is. The remedy is the gospel that points us beyond your sin to Calvary. The remedy is the gospel that shouts at you and says, listen, before there was even time, God chose you. At the right time, he died in your place, knowing your sin, past present and future. And so as he exclaims on the cross, it is finished. Your sin is finished. When we say that he has paid for my sin in full, he hasn't left 300 pounds of baggage with you. And if he has, then he's a liar. And we don't believe he's a liar. When he said he's paid for it in full, he has paid for it in full. When he says he's removed your transgressions as far as the east is from the west, he has. Your sin, he's paid for in full. And so when we get to Romans 8 verse 1, and Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we need to apply that to our lives. We need to realize this is truth. And the condemnation guilt that you feel, Jesus has already dealt with 2,000 years ago. And so even though we're tempted to drag it around, what we are doing in that is basically accusing God of not really paying for it at all. Which is not true. We feel guilt because we're tempted to feel it by Satan. But when we're tempted to despair by Satan, we need to look upwards and see the one who died in our place, who paid for our sin in full, past, present and future, and looks at you in your eye and says, you're forgiven. You're clothed in the righteousness of me. When God sees you, the Father, he sees you through the perfection of his Son. Period. It is finished. It's dealt with. Paid for in full. And when you get that individual seeing that, you can watch scales fall from their eyes as they then explode in joy. As the gospel points them beyond their sin to Calvary. My friends, the gospel truly is an incredible source of deep and irrevocable joy. It points us beyond our works to grace, helping us see you don't need to spin plates. Jesus has paid it all. My chains are gone. And he has paid for your sin in absolute full. It's not about your works. It's about his works. 
when he died 2,000 years ago on a cross in your place. It points us beyond our feelings to truth, helping us to get off the subjective roller coaster and instead stand on Christ the solid rock and allow that to inform our emotions. And the gospel points us beyond our sin to Calvary, a place where everything makes sense and a place that we come away from not with despair at our sin, but with joy and gratitude as we're so affected by his scandalous grace. And so I want to encourage you, folks, live then in the light of that. Live in the light of these truths. And by God's grace then, deep and irrevocable joy will be your theme. And next week I'm going to do another message called Living the Gospel-Saturated Life. Because I'm aware there is nothing more frustrating sometimes than when you hear a message and you think, I want to do that. I, I want to live gospel-saturated so that I may receive this deep and irrevocable joy. But then we leave the hall all excited and have no idea how to do it. So I want us to gently and clearly take our time next week to explain this is how you live the gospel-centered life. This is how you allow the gospel to point us regularly beyond our works, beyond our feelings, beyond our subjectivities, so that joy and truth may be our theme. But even ahead of then, live in the light of this. And here's what you can anticipate. Deep and irrevocable joy that will never be taken away. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word and We thank you for the joy that it does indeed cultivate. Lord, as we consider Calvary, one of the greatest joys, Lord, is you realize that our lives are based upon objective fact. They're based upon a truth that you died for us in our place and you rose again. And so when it comes to our works and our feelings, Lord, they're irrelevant to our salvation and justification. Everything we have and everything we do is based upon you. And so Lord, help us to live in light of this message and help us to live in light of the gospel and with deep and irrevocable joy then truly be our theme. In Jesus' name, amen.